I hope you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7, and we are, as Pastor Matthew has said, in a twisted scriptures series. If you have the Bible that's in the pew right in front of you, it's page 812, Matthew chapter 7, and I want us to all get into that, into that scripture. I'm telling you, these sermons, um, these untwisting of scriptures is not for the faint of heart. It is difficult. It is necessary for us to be able to do, and uh, I want us to be right in the Word of God doing this together. Let me tell you about two weeks ago, the lead singer of a Christian rock band, Everyday Sunday, his name is Trey Pearson. He put his career on the line and publicly declared that he is gay. He's eight years married, has two children. And he and his supporting wife amicably divorced. And Pearson said in an interview, and I'm quoting, there is absolutely no conflict with accepting who I am and following Jesus. God wants me to be healthy, authentic, whole, integrated, and my truest self. Now while I would vigorously and seriously disagree with Pearson's statement, and homosexuality is not our topic today, but I do want to at least tell you this before I tell you why I'm bringing this in. The Bible is crystal clear. It affirms marriage between a man and a woman. It affirms sexual intimacy between a man and a woman alone, consistently, without deviation. It defines homosexual behavior as sin. Now, I want to say that, and stay with me on this. I want to say that because if you are 30 and younger, 35 and younger, you are being bombarded, and you have been for years, with the lie that homosexuality is okay to God. It's not. And in order for them to get there, and if they're going to use the Bible to try to do that, they have to twist it beyond description. And I would love to talk to you more if you would like to, but that's not really why I'm bringing it up. I'm going to tell you why I'm bringing that up. I have people in my life who have identified themselves as gay, and I've got to tell you, I absolutely love them. I count them as my friends. But they know where I stand because I have told them what the Bible says. I have told them what my convictions are. I love them, but I will tell them the truth. But the Trey Pearson quote was interesting to me for this reason. I don't know if you do this, but as soon as I got done reading the article, I hastened down to the comment section below And I already knew what I was going to find. Here's what I was going to find. I knew it. I was going to find somebody that upheld the biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman. And then I was going to see somebody. I knew it. I could have guaranteed it. I was going to see somebody answer that person by quoting the text that we're going to untwist. And this is exactly what I found. Somebody upheld biblical marriage. They weren't mean about it. They were simply confident in what the Word of God says. And here is the response, and I'm quoting. Someone once said to me, 
Christians are a gentle bunch. They seem like more of a self-righteous bunch of judgmental creeps here. Whatever happened to judge not, lest you be judged. Now it's ironic, isn't it? That this person, it was a guy, decried judging while calling Christians a bunch of judgmental creeps. I mean, come on. He's doing the very thing that he's accusing Christians of being. But in our day of tolerance, and listen, if you get into the ring, like we talked about in the series of Jude, you get into the ring and you contend for the faith, you're going to experience this. If you define moral right and wrong, if you even define it, much less by the Bible, if you even define it, you're going to be receiving, and sometimes angrily, the direct quote of Christ. Judge not that you be not judged. Is that what he means? Now, I want to say something to balance this before we really get going in this sermon. There are a lot of Christians who deserve the angry tirade. They're hardly loving. There's very little to no mercy. There is a pastor in Florida who gave a, a sermon last week right on the heels of the Orlando shooting in the gay nightclub. The massacre, I think 49 people if I remember right. And he blasted homosexuality and gay people saying that it was good for our city. Now listen, he calls himself a Christian. That's never how a Christian ought to speak. That's never how a Christian ought to present Christ. There's a way to defend gospel truth mercifully, loving those whom you're trying to correct. So there are some who earn that tirade. Well, how do we not be that kind of Christian? How do we be brothers and sisters in the church that can speak against truth the way that Jesus wants us to. I'm going to give you a couple points. Matthew chapter 7. Here's the first one. What does it mean? What does it even mean to judge not? I mean, you've got to start there because this is where the twisting begins. People take this out of context. I want to untwist it. Let's put it back into context. The grammar of the words judge not mean, now listen, it's in a tense in the Greek tense, this is something you can't see in your English translations. If I were you, I would underline it. I'd put it in your margin. The grammar of judge not means that the disciples of Christ need to stop doing something that is continuous and ongoing. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's assuming that all of us judge. All of us do this. It's not some of the church that judges. We're going to learn what that means. It's not that there's a few that just haven't grown enough. Listen, it's everybody. Working on this sermon this week, even riding my bicycle yesterday and today, I could not believe all the thoughts that went through my mind of judgmentalism. I began praying today, I was on mile 18, and I'm praying, God, this is ridiculous. I've been preaching, I've been working on this, I'm going to preach this this weekend, and all I can see is how I'm judgmental. 
We all struggle with this. So Jesus begins by saying, listen, you need to stop. That's the Greek tense. Stop doing what's been continuous and ongoing. So let's just all do this. Ready? Let's every one of us do this. You and I together. Let's all admit we're judgmental. Let's all just admit it. It helps when you can start there. This is a message from Christ to me, not to the other person sitting next to me or around the sanctuary. This is personal. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is speaking to me. So what goes through your mind? Ready? Let's put a little test. I'm only going to give you a few examples. What goes through your mind when you see a person asleep downtown on a bench? Now come on, be honest. It's you and God. He knows everything anyways. Might as well be honest. Or when you see somebody that's overweight at a buffet restaurant, what goes through your mind? What are the thoughts that begin to form? What do you think toward that parent whose little ones are acting up in public? Or the Middle Eastern man with a turban on his head? Now listen, what's going through your mind when you're hearing somebody in America speak a language that's not English? What are your private thoughts when you see that someone, that certain person living in a huge mansion of a home? Or on the, at the, the converse of that, when they're living in a trailer? What are the thoughts that you have toward the people who collect your trash on the curb. Now listen, if you could begin to be alert that there's an ongoing judge that resides in you and everybody is swept into this, then all of a sudden redemptive power of the gospel, the words of Jesus, can begin to free you. But you've got to admit it. You've got to see it first. So if you're not able to see it, if those examples didn't really jar and jog some of what's in you that Jesus is addressing, listen, do what David said. Search me, O God. Pray this and see if there's any offensive or wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I, I would encourage you, pr bravely, pray that prayer. See what God will show you. But what does it even mean to judge? And is all judging wrong? If we try and define the word judge from the Greek language, remember the New Testament's written in mostly Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, the Old Testament's translated from Hebrew. So if we take the Greek word for judge, and it's almost, well, it's found all through the New Testament, and you try to define it, here's what you're going to find. It means to separate, choose, select, or determine, and there's a whole dozen, dozen more shades of meaning. It's really not very helpful to do it. There's a lot of possible meanings. What that tells you then, if, listen, if you're going to be a student of God's word, what that tells you is you've got to begin to look at the context. You expand the context. Not just the verses immediately surrounding, but you've got to look at the context and the entire word of God. So look at chapter 7 with me. Look at verse 15. You're in the Bible? Come on, let's be students of the word of God. Let's be the people of God's word. Here's what verse 15 says. Jesus is telling us to recognize the, the false prophets by their fruits. You cannot do that if you're not doing some form of judgment. 
You've got to do some form of judging to do that. Here's what judging means, remember? Separate, choose, select, determine, discern. Romans 13.1 tells us that God has instituted all governing authorities, even especially those who judge over us. So the position of a judge is upheld in the New Testament. The action of judging false prophets is upheld by Jesus. Christians are told to judge the right people. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 5.12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Listen, Christian, it's not really our job to be judging unbelievers Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So here's Paul saying, divinely inspired by the Spirit of God, we are to judge one another. What's that mean? Well, we're going to get to that. Jesus himself said, John chapter 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's telling us to judge. Do it with right judgment. I've only given you a few examples. There's a lot more. But it shows us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, here's what Jesus is not doing. He's not telling us to never judge. That's not what he's he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount at this point. He's commanding us to not have a critical and condemning spirit, now listen, where we believe we know the motives of the person and then decide whether they're deserving of our mercy or not that's what he's addressing we don't make very good gods a hypercritical attitude in a person who thinks that they know and that they live the standard of all that is right and have the right to hold others and punish them if they don't live up to that standard. And this is what he is condemning. So in short, here's what he's saying. Stop being hypercritical. Stop condemning. Stop climbing up in the throne thinking that you hold the gavel, that you hold the right to pound it down and declare them righteous or unrighteous, guilty or innocent, that you know their motives. Stop doing that. That's not how you are to be if you're my disciples. All right, so judge not doesn't mean never to judge. It means do not have a hypercritical condemning attitude. Well, let's get to point two. We're going to really start seeing what this means. Why? Why should we not have a judgmental attitude? Now, he's going to answer this. Now, listen, here's the cool part of the Word of God. You can be a 40-year-old Christian. You could be an 80-year-old Christian, having been reading the Word of God for 60 years, and come to the Word of God Trusting that he's going to show you what he wants you to see and see something different that you've never seen before. This is how endlessly deep God's word is. It's not like other books. This is, the, this is God himself in written form. This is written form capturing God's heart, ga- capturing God's attributes, capturing God's actions. It's endlessly deep. It is beautiful, which We need to be captivated by the Word of God. So you're going to read this passage. We're going to see in these scriptures things that maybe you'll find lurk way below the surface that you might not have gotten to. Look what he says. Ready? Everybody in your Bibles. Judge not 
that you be not judged. Years ago in college, I saw the movie The Goonies. Man, I love that movie. I saw, I saw it a couple times. It came out in 1985. Years later, when we started having our children, we had three of them at the time, and, and I said to Denise, I said, Denise, let's rent The Goonies. That's when Blockbuster was still around. We went and got the movie. We could not wait. I just loved this movie. It was like Indiana Jones for kids. So we rented this movie, and while we're watching the movie, it didn't take long to notice what I did not notice before, all of the profanity and the inappropriate sexual humor. Denise is giving me the evil eye because this was my idea to get the movie. And after the kids went to bed, we started talking about it. And what we both were amazed at was how did we not notice this before? Now, I wonder if you've had that experience as parents. And if you have, then you'll understand what I'm going to tell you right now. There is an innocence and a purity in children that heightens our awareness of sin. It's why somebody could be cursing like a sailor, but then all of a sudden a little child comes in and they curb most of it, if not all of it. You see, Jesus is employing this principle. Let me read it again. Judge not that you be not judged. He's employing this principle, but I don't know if you've ever noticed it. He's, he's employing the principle that the presence of purity, the presence of holiness, can control or curtail sin. It's easy to forget that, every, that at every single moment in our lives, we live in the full view of the Heavenly Father. But we live differently when we learn to be consciously aware of His presence. Not only His presence, but realizing there's an accountability that the Christian has with God. Let me read this verse and see if this does not put a little bit of godly, holy fear in you. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. This is from Jesus. You see, there is a judge that is higher than us. We don't hold the highest court. And he holds us accountable for everything. Now, I want you to get that down into your mind and get it beyond your mind, down into your heart. That's where transformation takes place. Listen, the more you live, the more you begin every morning, God, I am in full view of, of you today. In Latin, it's called quorum Deo, before the presence of God, before the face of God. God, it's in the morning. You're getting out of bed. Listen, don't even start walking yet. Just sit on the edge of your bed and begin going through. God, I'm going to live in... In full view of you today every word is going to be accountable by you one day I'm going to answer for these words I'm going to answer for my actions you're watching everything you're with me in every place that I am and watch and see what difference it makes in your life Christian are you aware that there are two eternal judgments two now let me walk you through this. One of them is the separation of believers from unbelievers. Jesus says in Matthew 25, the sheep from the goats. And Jesus will say to believers, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
and to unbelievers called the goats on his left, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's some motivation to be, to be sharing the gospel with those who are not saved. But that's one judgment. And you're telling me, probably, you might be thinking this, if you know Romans 8, 1, well, wait a minute, Tim, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And you're correct. But watch the second judgment. The second judgment is for believers only. And they will appear before God. That would be you and I, if you have put your faith in Jesus. We will one day appear before God, not to be condemned, listen, but commended for the works that our faith produced. Judge not that you be not judged tells us that judgmental believers, listen, those who have a critical condemning spirit will lose a great many rewards in eternity. You understand that, right? There will be hay, wood, and stubble, part of our works, done in our flesh, that when we appear before Jesus, not to be condemned but commended, those will not become rewards. They will be burned up. The only thing that's going to endure into eternity are actions born from faith that look like Jesus. They look like how Jesus would live. And they're able to be there in our lives because of the grace of God that is producing them. The Spirit of God is working in us a righteousness. But those things we do in the deeds of the flesh, they're going to burn. A hypercritical, judgmental, I count your motives as wrong even though I'm not God and I pound my guilty gavel on you. That will burn because there's a judge higher than us. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, there's one other thing that's kind of deep in this. Remember, I'm answering the question, why should we not be judgmental? Why? Well, the second one is this. We will be judged the way we judge. This ought to be frightening. This ought to be quite sobering for all of us. We will be judged the way that we judge. Let me tell you a story that's real. There's actually paintings that have been done capturing this story. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote a book called The Histories. In the fifth book of it, he tells a grim tale of a corrupt Persian judge who was swayed by a bride, bribe rather, and gave a biased verdict. Now listen, you, you, did you capture that? He's corrupt. He was bribed. He gave a biased verdict. The judge's name was Sisamnes. He was a royal judge. He was installed into that position by the Persian king Cambyses. And when the king discovered his judge's moral breach. Now listen, here's where the story gets actually graphic but interesting. He ordered him to be executed. This is what the paintings capture. And then he had his skin flayed from his dead body and preserved. And with the skin, he covered the seat of the chair on which the judge's 
were to sit while they administered their judgment. And then he installed the executed judge's son to replace his father on that very judge's seat. And he said this, you will sit to administer justice upon the skin of your delinquent father. Should anyone incite you to do evil, remember his fate. Look down upon your father's skin, lest his fate befall you. Wow. We'll be judged according to the way we judge. For with the judge, now you don't believe that, right? Some of you are not going to. Look at verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Now some of us are going, wait a minute, what about grace? Grace doesn't let you off the hook for failing to do what you should have done. Thank God, through Jesus, you will appear before him in believer's commendation, but there will be things in all of our lives that will burn up. They will not make it into eternity, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A hypercritical, judgmental spirit is the evidence that in that heart, there's a lack of grace. Jesus is speaking against his people, judging motives. What he's bringing out is don't judge motives. Don't be hypercritical. Don't come up on the throne believing you got the right to know what they believe. You know the right standard. You live the right standard. They fall short of you, therefore they're guilty. That's hypercritical condemnation, and he is barring that from his disciples' lives. Our judgment must be right, must be gracious, fair judgment, done in a way that we want others to judge us. Now, this is a very, very, very good principle. Jerry Bridges, who just died March of this year, was one of my favorite teachers. Somehow, Pastor Bridges could take such lofty doctrines and simplify them so that I could finally get it, that I could finally begin to live it. And what he did was he took all of the ways that 1 Corinthians 13 says that we need to love. And he says it's like going into a pool and every one of those represent 13 of them, tennis balls. And you're in the pool with 13 tennis balls. And you're trying to bring all of them and submerge them below the water. And you get two in this hand and three in this hand. And then one pops back up and you go back up to get it. And you try, they keep popping back up. He said it's just impossible. If you want to live 1 Corinthians 13, then just do what Jesus says. Love others as you would have love others love you. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He says that's the entire 1 Corinthians 13 in one statement. So listen, if you don't want to be judged by people, then don't judge somebody else. All of us, please hear this. All of us tend to judge others by by, by one standard. And ourselves by another. Listen, this is just on board the flesh. This is what we do battle against every day. We tend to judge people by one standard, and then we have a different standard when it comes to judging ourselves. And we're far more gracious and generous and understanding with ourselves than we are with other people. 
See, some rabbis, when Jesus was here on earth, taught that God had two measures that he used when he judged people. Here's the first one. He had a measure of justice, and the second one was a measure of mercy. Two measures, justice and mercy. So friends, listen, Christian brother and sister, can you imagine what it would be like if God were to judge us with just justice? Judge us with what we would deserve. There's none of us that would go to heaven. There's none of us that would be saved. All of us rightfully, and I use this word in the right way, damned, all of us judged and condemned. If God's measure was justice, thank God that Jesus met the wrath of God. It was poured out on him, all of our sins put onto him, his righteousness put onto, onto us. Thankfully, God is a just God. Didn't, God the Father didn't stop being just. Jesus just took all of the wrath of the sin. His perfect justice poured out on his son. There was nothing left for those in Christ. The only thing left for you, Christian, is mercy and grace and love. Now think about this for a moment. If that's true for you, and if that's true for me, then we create and fabricate justice when it comes to other people, and we hold them accountable to it. We've had all of our sins met in Christ, yet we demand they meet their sins to us. How thankful we are for his measure of mercy. And that thankfulness should move us to use that same measure with other people. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Two powerful reasons why we should stop being judgmental and hypocritical and hypercritical. It directly affects our eternal reward. And second, gratitude for God's mercy should spill over in our attitudes towards others. But what's really taking place, and this is our third and final point, what's really taking place in a judgmental, hypercritical heart? Point number three, what are the problems in judgmental people? Look what he says in verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Now listen, a speck is a small piece of chaff or a twig, a little tiny piece of a twig that sometimes when they're threshing grain would get into you know, a little bit of the stalk of the grain that would get into their eye. They didn't have safety glasses. And though it was small compared to, look what he says, a log, it still bothers and affects the eye. The comparison Jesus is giving, now listen, this is so utterly critical. The comparison between a speck and a log is not between a small sin or fault and a large one, but between a serious sin in fault and a critically serious one. Because both of them affect your eye, both of them give you pain, and whether it's a small sin or a serious sin, they both require mercy. See the speck. Do you see what it says? Look what Jesus says. Why do you see the speck? That's written in the present tense. 
And what we have is a hypercritical, judgmental person continuing to carp on and, and point out small sins or faults in others. But they're just unable to see the large sins and faults in their own lives. There are problems within the hearts of fault-finding, hypercritical people. Let me give you two of them. And he's right in the text. Judgmental people just cannot see clearly. They cannot see clearly. Now let's, let's do what David says, or let's do what um, God tells Job to do. Brace yourself like a man, or brace yourself like a woman. All right, let's really ask ourselves, am I a hypercritical, judgmental person? I've had to ask myself that all week. The answer is yes. I'm pleading for God's mercy. I'm suspecting there's a lot of us that do this. In fact, let me be a little braver. Every one of us do this. I read of a husband who thought his wife was growing deaf. So one evening he sat in a chair on the far side, or she sat in the chair on the far side of the room, and her back was to him, and, and unknowingly he quietly whispered, can you hear me? There was no response. He moved a little closer, he asked again, can you hear me now? And still no reply. Quietly he edged closer, whispered the same words, but still no answer. And finally, he came right behind her chair, right to her ear, and said, can you hear me now? And with irritation in her voice, she said, for the fourth time, yes. <laughs> now that's a cute little story, but what it does is it really accentuates the point. Judgmental people can't see themselves clearly. They think the problems are in everybody else. Jesus had just said in this passage that hypercritical fault finders do not notice. Did you catch those words? Do not notice their own sins and faults. Now he explains that only after the log is removed, then you will see clearly. There's a vision problem of the heart and judgmental people. They can't see. In order for them to see, the log must be removed. They're plagued with a blindness that they're not even aware of. Listen, if you're married to a judgmental, hypercritical person, if you are in love with one, if you know one, if you have one in your family, you work with one, if you've got one in your neighborhood, if you go to school one, with one, listen, you must operate on this. You pointing it out to them won't work. They can't see it. They've got to get their log removed. That's the power of the gospel. You need to lead them to Jesus. But then secondly... What's really going on? What are the problems in judgmental people? There's three of them. I'm, I'm going to give you three of them. The second one, judgmental people intrude before they're invited. They intrude before you're invited. They walk all over people. Look what he says in verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Well, the brother didn't ask. It doesn't matter to judgmental people. They feel obligated they feel rights of ownership to step in and step on people how forward this is it's how judgmental people are as they feel that they're the moral police if i don't point it out then they're never going to be able to change so they feel really that they're in the place of god and they feel justified to do it Judgmental people feel obligated to confront, to make sure everyone else sees what they see, which is rarely their own sins and shortcomings. Now listen, just think of this for a moment. If you've been to an optometrist, an ophthalmologist, you have to get into a person's space to see a speck. You've got to get really close. 
You've got to invade. And if you're going to reach in there and help pull it out, then listen, they're going to recoil from you, the judgmental person, but you've got to get in close if you're going to reach that speck. This is a violation. They intrude before they're invited. Ask anyone who's had an optometrist put a contact in their eyes for the first time. And they will tell you how intrusive it feels, how everything in them wants to recoil, their eyelids want to shut, how powerful the desire to back away. There is such wisdom in learning to wait and pray when you see something in someone else that is not good. Wait and pray rather than invade. Let the invitation come. Let God provoke the invitation. Trust that God will make an awareness occur in that person that they have a problem and that they need help. Jesus is not saying to never point out another's faults, but don't make it your mission. Don't violate, don't intrude, don't make it your practice. Third, and finally, judgmental people live a charade. Look what he says, verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. A hypocrite was a professional actor. That's where the word came from. And how they did this in that day is they didn't have multiple actors. They had multiple masks, and they had them on sticks. And if you changed your character in the play, you simply put a different mask over your face. And the audience knew now you're in this character. And what it promoted or what it evolved into is our phrase, two-faced. It's the man whom James said looks in a mirror, sees, but doesn't really see himself, and he walks away forgetting what he even looks like. This is a hypocrite, doesn't see himself or herself clearly, and lives a life behind a mask, a life of duplicity. Here's how it looks, you ready? You've heard this, I'm sure. You lose your temper, but I have righteous anger. That's a hypocrite. You're a jerk. I'm just having a bad day. You have a critical spirit. I'm just telling the truth. You gossip. I'm sharing prayer requests. You curse and swear. I'm just letting off steam. You're pushy. I'm intensely goal-oriented. It's the way God made me. That's how a hypocrite thinks. That's how they communicate. And any of us could be a hypocrite where we sanctify our sins while condemning those of others. And look what Jesus says. You must first take the log out of your own eye. How do you do that? Probably the most important part of the sermon. The way you take the log out of your eye. Here it is. Listen, Christian brother and sister, you must, I must do this. You must look perfect. You must look long in the perfect mirror of God's word. It's the only mirror that could be 100% accurate. 
You must look long in the perfect mirror of God's word. And when it reflects back to you, when it reveals something that is displeasing to God, something that you didn't see before, but now in crystal clarity, you can see it. Here's what you've got to do if you want to get the log out. You confess it. It means I agree, God, and therefore I cast it to you. That's the double meaning of confessing and you repent. You walk in a different direction from previous direction. That's how you do it. There is not another way to do this. Log removal is confession and repentance when the word of God reveals it. And sometimes he does it through his people. Sometimes directly in the spirit. Most of the time in his word. The hypocrite lives in unexamined life. Surface dwellers. And they only look at their behaviors. They don't look at their hearts but david says this better than anybody i think in the bible other than jesus in psalm 51 where only after his confession and repentance he prayed then then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you listen if you want to help somebody get the faults out of their lives the sins out of their lives those little specks then you've got to get a log removal going on then you can see clearly now listen and most of the time you're probably not going to do anything but pray You've got to have regular time where you invite God, examine me, search me, show me what's not pleasing to you. And I recommend that be a weekly habit of devotion. I mean every day in God's word, but a weekly time where you say specifically, God, show me, is there a log in my eye that I cannot see because it's blinding to me? I'm not able to see it. Has somebody been speaking this to me and I've been denying it? Are you speaking to me and I'm ignoring it? Show me what it is is through your word through your people through your spirit and i will confess it and i will repent it christians let's have less times telling others what their sins are and more time asking others if they're seeing things in us that need to be dealt with if you have a godly trusted friend ask them is there anything in me that you see that is displeasing to God. Be brave. If they're trusted, they're going to love you. The wounds of a friend can be trusted. And if you're asked, listen, if you're asked to speak into somebody else's life the same way, then do so, keeping truth together with grace. Don't forfeit one another. Grace without truth tends to cement, cement sinful habits in others. Truth without grace tends to harm the relationship. This is the aim of Jesus, that we build up and not tear down our brother and sister. That is the connection between verse 5 and verse 6. Now, I wonder if you've ever seen this before. Now, look at verse 6. What on earth does that have to do with anything of what Jesus was speaking? Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I mean, what is going on? It seems like a whole different teaching. It's important that we build each other up in the church. Why? So that we can distinguish good from evil, discern the counterfeit from the real. You know, in the Jewish sacrificial system, this is interesting, an animal was offered to the Lord. Part of it was given to the priests to eat. 
Part of it was taken home for the family's food. Part of it was left on the altar to be burned for God himself. That was the holy portion. The holy portion was what stayed on the altar for God alone. It'd be unthinkable, Jesus is using this imagery, to take some of that off of the altar and throw it to wild, scavenging dogs. And then he says a pearl, which was a metaphor for the gospel message and the kingdom of heaven. And there are people so antagonistic and so perversely against God that they want to destroy the gospel. They want to destroy the kingdom of heaven. And so in this analogy, what Jesus is giving, pigs cannot eat them. They can't eat pearls, so they spit them out. They trample them into the mud, and then they turn around and attack the one bearing the gospel message. The point is this. Jesus says, you've got to see clearly, you've got to be able to discern clearly clearly and know when it's right to judge when it's right to discern good from evil you've got to help each other grow up in that knowledge so that you do not believe their lie the solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil what jesus is saying listen there are some people you should not be giving the gospel to Wow, that sounds heretical. That's exactly what he's saying. And you will not be able to know if that's somebody who is so antagonistic, so against it, wants to destroy it, is going to do nothing but ridicule it. Don't throw the pearl of the gospel before them. Don't give what is holy to the dog. That's a time where you refrain from that and you pray for them. You show them by your life what Jesus looks like and pray for an opportunity to speak it. But don't speak it yet. So Jesus has taught us, and I'm going to be done in a minute. Jesus has taught us in this passage that we, if we are Christians, must not have a hypercritical judgmental attitude. But we are to learn to judge fairly, aware that we are held accountable by God. But when we come to announce or rather, when we come to someone who is antagonistic to the gospel, then it's not the argument that will win them to Christ. It's the life that lives the truth of the gospel. It's a life whose logs are being removed. It's a life of grace and love which refuses to be hypercritical, refuses to be judgmental, living pure and bright like Christ. So church, listen as I close. Let us stop being judgmental. Let us regularly confess and repent of our own sins. Let us be brave to speak the truth of the gospel in love. Let's not do it pronouncing them unworthy of it unless they're antagonistic to the point where the Spirit of God puts a check and says, wait and live. And we'll see if a door of opportunity opens up. Amen.